Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. There's a lot going on in our program today. Texas freedom, it turns out they really don't want you to know who's dying of COVID in Texas. This is very strange. Professor Richard Wolf is going to drop by, and we're going to be talking about the politics and the economics of inflation, which is, it seems kind of obscure, but it actually literally affects all of us. But I want to start out and talk with you about it. Take your thoughts, your calls and thoughts on this as well. Number one, let us never forget. And in fact, I just tweeted this, never forget. That had Mitch McConnell not refused to even hold a hearing for Merrick Garland for over a year and hold that seat open so that Neil Gorsuch could be confirmed on the Supreme Court, you know, once Trump came into office, had Mitch McConnell not done that, you would have Merrick Garland on the court, and the court would have stopped the state of Texas, five to four. Instead, it went five to four to empower the state of Texas. So this is, Mitch McConnell owns this as much as Texas owns this. And I want to dig into the, the, the abortion side of this in about 10 minutes here. But first, I just wanted to speak to the zeitgeist of the moment. I, I think this is really important that we, that we acknowledge this. Some Americans, and you know, I'll tell you, there are moments when Louise and I feel this way. We were talking about this this morning, which is what provoked me to, to write this, you know, what rant that I published on Hartman Report. But some Americans feel like we're living through the last days of some, you know, of, of the book of Revelation. You've got a worldwide pandemic that's killing people, including our children. You've got climate change that has now drowned the East Coast and the West Coast is on fire. You've got probably the most disheartening part of, the, of this is that the rescue workers on the East Coast and the firefighters on the West Coast are not only battling flooding and fires, they're battling COVID. You've got a group of right-wing billionaires and religious freaks who've seized control of one of our two major political parties and are hell-bent on taking us back to the 19th century, on crushing democracy, rolling back voting rights. Look at, you know, again, what they did in Texas. They passed the you-can't-vote-here bill as they aggressively are, these, these, you know, white conservatives in Texas aggressively taking, a, a, you know, more and more, imposing more and more restrictions on the lives of women and minorities in Texas. And a lot of people are, are just being crushed by this. I mean, emotionally. I mean, obviously, financially, and in some cases, even physically, you know, with, with uh, losing their homes to wildfires and floods and things. But uh, it, people are losing their jobs because of an economy that's been battered by recession, by, you know, the, the, the massive, the, the Bush crash of 2008 is still with us. The Trump crash of, of 2020 is still with us. The pandemic, the environmental crisis. People are facing huge medical bills simply because somebody in their family got sick. And so some people are just giving up. There's, you know, they're, you know, some of them are ending up in homeless shelters. I mean, literally giving up. 
Others are just retreating altogether from reading the news or participating in politics and instead are immersing themselves in yoga or binge watching Netflix. But, you know, times of great crisis like this, and this is the thing that we have to remember. Times of great crisis are also times of great opportunity. And while some people will always, you know, give up and walk away when the going gets tough, you know, giving the trolls and the Republicans what they want, there are others of us who realize the importance of doubling down on our activism. What was it, uh, Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, when the, when the times get weird, the weird get, get going or something like that. It's, my serious XM colleague, Joe Madison, taught me a great lesson years ago about the difference between movements and moments. You know, back in 1872, in November of 1872, when Susan B. Anthony voted in that presidential election, she was immediately arrested. In the following year, 1873, she was convicted for the crime of voting while female. She never lived to see women vote, but she kept up the fight. It was a moment that seemed like a setback, but it was the turning point that reinvigorated a movement. When Reconstruction failed in 1876, the Tilden Hayes uh, election, when you know, basically the political establishment of America got together and the white political establishment said, let's stab African-Americans in the back which they did, and end Reconstruction, and you know, just take that straight to Plessy and, and onward to Jim Crow. When that happened, it was a terrible moment for African Americans, but it didn't stop this broad and growing movement to create a true multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy in the United States, which we're still working on, by the way. We have a Republican Party right now that has been fully captured by right-wing billionaires, polluting industries, and now crazies. I mean, people who are, you've, you've got uh, a couple of politicians out there, Republican members of the House of Representatives, who are essentially trying to say, if you want to remain a Republican, you have to endorse what happened on January 6th. You've got members of the Republican Party openly calling for bloodshed, Madison Cawthorn's word, to, as, a, as a solution for political conflict. You've got some of these guys, members of Congress, participated in this attempt to seize the U.S. Capitol and assassinate the Vice President of the United States and the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And now you've got this so far successful effort by Republicans to use vigilantes in Texas to intimidate low-income women. And keep in mind, this is, you know, any, any woman in Texas who's, who's in the top 20% income-wise, any woman in Texas who's making more than $50,000, $60,000 a year, they can afford a, a plane ticket to Phoenix or Los Angeles or Denver or wherever they want to go and get an abortion. But using vigilantes to intimidate low-income women in Texas, this program, now that the Supreme Court endorsed it on a five-to-four basis, John Roberts, by the way, siding with the three liberals, this is now poised to spread all across the United States. Over the next two weeks, I predict you're going to see at least a half a dozen states adopt this. They have changed the voting laws in 19 states now so they can rig elections to maintain their power in the face of a dwindling, of dwindling support by the American public. I mean, this is a moment of crisis on so many different levels, and yet it is also an extraordinary moment of opportunity. We all need to dig deep into our inner resources. We all need to reconnect with each other and reach out to the people that we love and the people that we support and who support us you know, through our friendships and emotionally and, and, and well, and even in other ways, other more physical ways. And reconnect with each other and reconnect with our movements. We need to reconnect with nature and, and, and experience that, you know, go out and take a walk and just, what can I be in awe of today? Look at those clouds. Oh my God, look at that tree. Isn't, isn't life an extraordinary gift? When I think of what my mother or father, who have both passed along, passed away now, what either one of them would give for, for two minutes to just sit here and look at this world. We are so fortunate. 
And we are so fortunate to have the ability to be political activists, to try to make a better world, to go up against the right-wing billionaires and the polluting industries and the, and the, and the neo-fascist crazies and, the, and the, the, the demented racists. We are so fortunate to have this moment. We need to hang on to it. We need to immerse ourselves in it. We need to double down. Because this is, this is a movement. We're having a moment, but there's a much larger movement here. Mike in Lomita, California. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to suggest that the United States should invade Texas to protect the human rights of the women who live there. Uh, that was our justification for 20 years of war in Afghanistan, after all. Well, and, and well, it's one of the justifications. Actually, the main one was, we're going to stop America from ever getting attacked again by attacking a country that didn't attack America. But, but yes, I, I, I get what you're saying. And, and I, in fact, I, I, I tweeted about that. You know, saying we said we were going to stop the Taliban from abusing women, and you know, and here we go with Texas. Excellent point. Well, we ha- we have invaded Texas before. Remember Juneteenth and its origins. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a parallel situation. But seriously, the Supreme Court has had its Dred Scott moment now. Yes. Uh, asserting that women do not have the rights to the protections of the United States Constitution, and they have. I think the majority has degraded the court by violating two of the principles that are supposed to govern all of the court's actions. One is stare decisis, which means standing on decided things or following precedent. Uh, And essentially, they have just said, oh, we're all for precedent. But Roe v. Wade, that's, that's, you know, 50 years old. We don't care. And the other, of course, is judicial parsimony, which means you don't go in and do the legislature's job, which they seem to have taken on to themselves a few years ago by uh, trashing the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. So I, they uh, have degraded themselves beyond any, you know, hope of being respected again. Yeah. And this is this is where if the Democrats, I mean, the Democrats have this little window here of about a year. And if they don't blow up the filibuster, reform the courts, outlaw basically gerrymandering and voter suppression, and start putting America back together, they're going to, start, they're going to lose elections. It's going to dishearten the, the Democratic base. The, and the Republicans are going to become the, I, not to say that they're not already, but they're going to, they're going to sink deeper into their fascist or their neo-fascist belief systems and to the extent possible, and they're already doing it with these voting intimidation laws, and now, you know, legalizing, I mean, they, they just legalize vigilantes in Texas to go after women or go after people who help women get abortions. They also, what, what is almost never mentioned, is that they enabled the new voting law enables vigilantes to stand at polling places and intimidate people. And has anyone else noticed that the Taliban in Afghanistan and the Taliban in the United States are both actively engaged against vaccinations? The uh, Taliban in Afghanistan and the tribal area of Pakistan were murdering uh, people who were trying to do polio inoculations or the policemen who are there to guard them. And uh, in this country, we've had people uh, attacking vaccination sites. Oh, they had to shut down, shut one down in Georgia uh, yesterday or the day before because of that. Yeah, absolutely. So they they have absolute right to the sanctity of their own bodies, but we don't have the right to have our bodies vaccinated according to their thinking. Yeah, it's the American Taliban. It really is. Mike, thank you for the call. want to lay this on you and then we can talk about it and we'll just continue the conversation throughout the day. The case that I'm making, and I, I touched on this yesterday, but I, I, I wanted to fill it out and, and, you know, really do it, is that the Republican Party, ever since the Reagan election, I mean, you can argue, I, you can take this back to the 1920s, but, but Eisenhower kind of broke the mold. So let's, let's just look at this since 1980. 
the Republican Party has been the party of billionaires and big, largely polluting companies ever since, ever since the 1980 election. And the problem that they have is that there's not enough billionaires who, to vote for them to win an election. And companies can't vote at all. So they put together this coalition of five groups, these so-called single-issue groups. And, and here's how I identify them. Group number one, uh, working-class white racists. This is who Nixon started shouting out to in 68 with his Southern strategy. Number two, sexually insecure men who are gun and military garb fetishists. Number three, upper middle class and rural, so-called anti-welfare, anti-tax white people. Number four, so-called Christian religious freaks who want their particular sect running the government. And number five, the anti-abortion, so-called pro-life activists. Without all five of those groups, Republicans can't win elections. Which raises a really vital question, you know, because the, the Democratic Party also has a coalition. It's uh, well-educated urban whites, racial minorities, gender minorities and women, Social Security, Medicare age voters, and young people. And the Democratic base is growing and the Republican base is shrinking. So this, you know, and, they, and the Republicans have to have all five of these groups. So could it be that now that the anti-abortion people have got their pound of flesh now that they've got what they want in Texas, that they're going to put down the bullhorns and go home and say, okay, you know what? Okay, let's, what else does the Republican Party have to offer me? Oh, they, they don't want me to have health care? They don't want me to be able to vote? They want, they want the polluting industries to be able to pour more poison into the air? They, 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 don't want, they want my kids to get sick at school? Wait a minute. Why am I supporting the Republican Party? I was with them all along because they said that they were going to stop abortion. Well, fine, they stopped abortion. Now I'm looking around going, what? I mean, four out of those five groups, you know, the white racists, the sexually insecure men, the upper middle class white people who don't want to pay taxes, and the Christian, you know, the religious freaks, they're going to be with the GOP for a long, long time. But the anti-abortion folks... I, I mentioned in my piece an, a novel, a mystery novel that I read back in the 1980s. I spent a half hour yesterday trying to find it. I, I couldn't. I'm pretty sure it was written by Ed McBain or Lawrence Block because I was just reading all their stuff back then. But it's a detective novel. It takes place in New York City. And there's these women getting raped all over the city, repeatedly raped. And, they, and the, the police are trying to figure this out. And eventually what they discover is that what's common among all these women who didn't know each other, but they were all anti-abortion activists in different areas, different parts of the city. And this rapist was impregnating them. And they were all then getting abortions and then leaving the movement. And, you know, it's just totally twisted. I mean, this is just an awful and ugly plot device, intentionally, to make the point, right? And it, it raises the really interesting question. What happens when this abortion ban gets real for Republicans in Texas? What happens when... Uh, you know, as routinely ha does happen, the daughters of the well-off and politically active in Texas end up with unwanted pregnancies. What happens when one of their kids dies from a coat hanger abortion? What happens when a friend or neighbor, you know, and that happens to a friend or neighbor? I mean, let's just be honest. The so-called right-to-life movement, by and large, has never been about life. These are the same people who don't want once babies are born, families have access to food stamps or to, or to child care or any kind of subsidies. They don't want to expand Medicaid. I mean, hell, they're fine with, with uh, forcing kids to expose themselves to COVID in our schools, which is literally killing them. They're all trying to prove that they're tougher than the sociopath from Mar-a-Lago. Children are literally dying, and these pro-life Republicans are pushing laws right now. For more children to have to expose themselves to, to, to this disease. So have the Republicans, are they the dog that's caught the car? Is this going to backfire on them? And is it going to activate an entire new generation of young women activists on the Democratic side? I think so. Now, I may be completely wrong here. And, and we're probably not going to know for a year or two. But I think this is going to blow up in their faces. What do you think?
Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And uh, let's get some of your thoughts on what's going on here. Janet in Bainbridge Island, Washington. Hey, Janet, what's on your mind? Everything that you're saying this morning is on my mind. I think you are putting it together in a superb stream of consciousness sort of way. My issue for the moment is the anti-abortion Supreme Court decision. Mm -hmm. And I so want to start calling this anti-abortion effort, the product of male opportunity to impregnate anyone at any time that he wishes and leave the consequences to anyone else. And I was thinking, you know, that's what the Scarlet Letter is about. Hmm. That was a long time ago. The Scarlet Letter, yeah. um, and novel. of course that woman nobly carried her baby, mm-hmm. but um, the idea that any man, a rapist, a father, is entitled to cause a baby to happen inside a woman just enrages me so much, and I don't understand why that isn't the focus. It's a good point, Jen. That's a very good point, and, and, and I think that there's a large, a large piece of this that is all about misogyny and misogyny is not just hatred of women it's it's the the in some cases i think fear and desire to dominate women as well excellent points janet thank you very much for that teresa in bellevue washington hey teresa what's on your mind hi tom uh yeah abortion again um hey i was thinking so the 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 question as to when life begins to me it feels like it's essentially a religious question i mean i think if i'm right different religions look at it differently some are ovulation some are implantation i mean anyway i i'm not really educated on that there is a medical definition and that is brainwave activity when you know this is how they determine that a fetus has died in the womb if it's, it's if it's more than you know 20 weeks along you know where there is brainwave activity um, when that brainwave activity stops, that's when they will declare death legally, put it on a death certificate, and, and then do whatever surgery is necessary to remove that, that fetus. So there is actually a medical definition. This whole heartbeat thing is just a canard. Uh, at six weeks, yes. there is no heart. There is, a, there is a small bundle of muscles and a little collection of cells that are smaller than the tip of your finger. There is a, a, a little collection of cells that someday will be a heart that begin pulsing. Um, but that's not a heart. That that heart doesn't form for for quite some time. Um, and, exactly. Yes. And and, and, and my, my, it makes me crazy to hear the word heartbeat on TV because this it's not a heartbeat. It's it's a it's a it's a tiny electrical tremor. Forgive my interrupting. Yes. 
Well, and so in my religious view, and I'm a Christian, in my religious view, really life begins at viability. I mean, that's what I, that's my sincerely held religious belief. It's also what so the Supreme why Court do I, Yes, and, and it happens to match with a rational, medical, empirical, you know, judgment that other people can make. Right. And so prior to that, it's a religious question. So why do, why don't I have the religious freedom to pick my time when life begins? Why do I have to pick someone else's religion and they have to dictate to me? So I think abortion really should be argued on the basis of religious freedom. I think they ought to pull out RIFRA and just say, look, my religion says viability. I'm not a Catholic. <laughs> you know, yeah. so why do the Catholics get to dictate to me when life begins? Well, in part because there's six of them on the Supreme Court. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah like, exactly. In fact, I mean, but from, you know, there's never been more than 15. There's been 100 and I think 100 and, 115 or 118 people on the Supreme Court and only 15 have ever been Catholic. And, and it's mostly right now. And that's not to jump on Catholics. It's that the, the right. Leonard Leo, the guy who was running running the whole Federalist Society, I think it's Leonard Leo, the guy running the Federalist Society, is one of these hardcore right-wing Catholics, and that's what they've been pushing toward the Supreme Court over the last decade or so, uh, on the assumption that they're more likely to strike down the right of a woman to have an abortion. Yes, well, I say social distancing between church and state. Yeah, amen. I'm with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you. Don in Watertown, South Dakota. Hey, Don, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I'm just wondering, isn't it time that Biden does to Texas what Texas is doing to the rest of us? What do you mean? By that I mean, well, by that I mean, it's about time we shut down a few military bases in Texas. Ah, uh, stop sending the, the money. Federal, the federal government can do that. Yeah. And I don't once, know if... Once they're, Go once ahead, they're without that federal, once they're without that federal money, that economy will go in the tank so fast they'll be shooting at it the next time he turns around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, Don, I'm, I'm, I'm not real sure if uh, Texas is one of the maker states or the taker states. Whether it's, you know, I, I'd have to look it up. If it's, if it's, it is a red state, but you know, uh, whether they're. For every dollar they send to Washington, D.C., do they get back less than a dollar, like California, New York, or do they get back as much as $3, like, you know, Mitch McConnell's Kentucky? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but, but doing something like that, yeah, I'm with you. Don, thank you for the call. Mike in Bailey, Colorado. Hey, Mike, what's up? Oh, yeah, my brother called me uh, to needle me about the anti-abortion law in Texas, mm -hmm. and I pointed out to him once more, if you're going to hold these women accountable, when are these laws going to require that all males being born as of the day it is uh, put into place to the day you're dropped dead and get put in the ground, why aren't we being required to submit DNA samples so that the men can be held accountable as well as the women? This, it's, I can have fun and you get to be held accountable for it. It's a little on the unfair side from the way I look at it. Yep. And this is what that, the woman who called earlier, I'm sorry, I don't recall her name. Um, uh, said, you know, that this, the, this, what you're looking at is a worldview that says men have the right to impregnate women willy-nilly uh, with no consequences and, and you know, no, no side effects, and women have to bear the entire burden of not only the pregnancy and, and uh, or in the experience if it's rape, um, but also of the child for the rest, you know, for the, for the next 18 years at the very least. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and I keep pointing out how, you know, him being a conservative so pro-life that all he seems to be concerned about is that fetus and everything else after the birth, he's anti-life. Yeah, these, you know, these people, the yeah, these people are not pro-life. They are pro-birth. Uh, it's, I mean, it's yes. just, we just have to be very clear about that. And they're, they're, they're going, you know, out of their way to, to ba basically make it very, very clear to everybody. So uh, I call him pro I call them pro-fetus. Yeah, yeah, or forced birth folks. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. Lynn in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Lynn, what's up? Hi, I'm a nurse, and I've volunteered at Planned Parenthood for years. Um, it appears to me that we do not take this issue seriously until it's in our face that we're losing our rights. We have had very little discussion of this up till now, and certainly not consistent. I heard it mentioned once during the debates. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And uh, I, that's, that's why I'm asking the question. And I'll ask you, Lynn, you know, is this going to help the Republican Party? I mean, I, I have, you know, I got some correspondence from a few uh, people who are subscribers to my newsletter. One says, uh, you know, that uh, next they're going to deny college financial aid to women who get abortions. They're going to treat the purchase of Plan B as the equivalent of an illegal abortion. They're going to allow state officials to search houses for abortion paraphernalia, including literature promoting ab an abortion agenda. You know, another person uh, sent me a note saying, you know, you think the Republicans are going to back off or the pro-lifers are going to leave the Republican Party? You're wrong. This is just going to energize them and increase their numbers. How do you think, what, you know, what's the political impact of this going to be, Lynn? I, uh, you know, I, I have no idea. I wish I had the answers. But yeah. it just seems like the left is on defense all the time. Um, I... My kid was deployed to Iraq, and when he came back, he was unemployed for 19 months. It's never talked about. Yeah. You know, these heroes, 20 suicides a day. Yeah. It's not talked about except Veterans Day, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there, it's like crisis on top of crisis. Um, Lynn, I'm, uh, you know, thank you very much for the call, and, and thank you for, for serving in the ER there. I appreciate it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week. We're right here. We'll be right back. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Yeah, interesting conversation. Uh, what really got me going was when you were talking earlier about, you know, enjoying nature. And, you know, you're, you're up there in Oregon uh, near the coast in Portland. I'm down here, you know, 90 miles south of San Francisco on the coast. Very beautiful areas. Uh, you know, of course, you know, there's been places where towns and cities have been built, subdivisions and so on. And I think last year with COVID, when a lot of people were working at home remotely and they could kind of work whenever they wanted, you know, I, I did see people kind of walking around enjoying things a lot more. But I want to also tie this into if, if it's a big if, we do go to a renewable energy um, work, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, structure, which means, you know, getting rid of fossil fuels almost 100 mm percent. -hmm. And um, one of the things I'm wondering is, uh, would that mean, because it's solar and wind, geothermal, where it, where it exists and so on, that there would be less power available overall? And so that perhaps you can't have something like a Safeway open 24-7. Because when I first moved to Aptos, and this we're talking 40 years ago, that store used to open at 7 in the morning, and it was closed at 7 at night. Right. And by the mid-90s, it was open 24-7. And that, this would be, you know, for a lot of these big box stores, I imagine, they might not be able to be open all day. You might not have all these lights on all over cities, which is light pollution, which nobody ever talks about. You know, when you have a blackout because of a huge storm around here, and if it clears off and you have the night sky, you can see a cabillion uh, stars. Otherwise, you don't see that many stars because of all the light. And I think of all the electricity that is wasted because I don't think we need all that much light. And, you know, maybe people would go to bed earlier and get a good night's sleep and use the computer less, use the TV less and get out and enjoy things. What do you think? I, I think there are two separate topics that uh, have a kind of Venn diagram overlap. Uh, you know, the, the, the question of our consumption of energy and our sources of energy. Um, but I, I really believe that uh, we have a, a, a nuclear fusion reactor uh, running 24-7, 93 million miles away from us, that is blowing out so much energy at us that there's no way we could consume it if we just started collecting it. If every rooftop in America, just if every rooftop in America became a solar collector, um, we, would mm -hmm. have, we would have such a massive surplus of electricity. 
um, you know, would be able to do anything. So it's, it's not a question of, of uh, you know, can we get off fossil fuels? We can easily get off fossil fuels. Um, you know, even, the, even the, the cloudy parts of the country, the cloudiest part of Europe is Germany, and Germany did this successfully. Um, exactly, so, so yeah. Number one, we can do that. Number two, this whole question of light pollution at night and, and uh, you know, a, essentially a religion of consumption, um, I, I think is a somewhat separate issue and uh, probably should exist in its own conversation separate from the cost of electricity, which I'm guessing is going to be going down over time rather than up. But, you know, I, you, you raise excellent points, Dennis, excellent points, as usual. Dennis, thank you for the call. Tom Harmon here with you and uh, Susan in Decatur, Georgia. Hey, Susan, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I was trying to explain to your screener how to explain this, but you are so smart with history and how to tie this up into politics and, and current events. And I know you're not a fortune teller, but maybe you can guide us on the trajectory that we are on right now. If you add that Netflix special, The Family, with the Taliban agenda of the Republican Party and Bannon's traditionalism plus American exceptionalism, where are we headed? We're headed toward a neo-fascist state, toward a worshiping, you know, a mythical time in the past, the great glory of the past. This was, this was you know, Mussolini's sales pitch, right? This is, this is the sales pitch of every dictator or wannabe dictator. Bolsonaro is doing it right now in, in uh, Brazil. He's trying to shut down the Supreme Court. He's trying to change the election laws so that he will always win the elections, which is exactly what Orban did in Hungary, which is why Tucker Carlson is praising him on Fox News. That's that's where you but, end up, Susan. But besides um, giving the Dems talking points and and maybe propping up their, you know, their PR team or something, what else can we do? I, I think that we have to remain get as many people as possible, as politically active as possible. They're, they're, we still live in something that resembles a democracy. Large chunks of our democracy have been shredded by the Supreme Court and other decisions, and large chunks of it never really came into being for all Americans. But we still have enough of a democracy that if enough Americans get mobilized, we can do things. We can do extraordinary things in this country moving forward. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not disheartened. I'm horrified. But I'm not disheartened, and I'm actually optimistic that this, I think this is overreach on the part of the GOP in Texas. And, right. you know, time will tell. But I think it's overreach, and it's going to blow up in their face. We will see. Susan, i got to move along. Thank you for the call. Sharon in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, Sharon, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for taking my call. I'm calling to be able to share my personal story about illegal abortion. Okay. Yes. Uh, I'm 76 now. I was 20. I was in my senior year of college, and I didn't, well, this is really far-fetched, but the truth is I hadn't had intercourse, but there was it was close enough that I got pregnant. And uh, abortions were not legal, so I was sent to a doctor who stuck <clears throat> tubes in me, and it took... Oh, God, close to three months before I finally went into labor. The labor was horrific. Uh, the pain was excruciating. And after the fact, I was hemorrhaging. And my father went and called to find out what to do. Couldn't take me to a hospital because what happened was illegal. So uh, he was told to go and have me put my legs up against a wall and put cold compresses on my belly. Thank God I didn't die. Wow. I can't imagine what a woman would go through these days having to deal with that again. Your thoughts. Thank you for sharing that story, Sharon. That, that's powerful stuff. Um, I, you know, this, this is what it was like. For those people who are, you know, young people listening, if, if you were not, you know, if, you're, if you were not uh, of an age where you could get pregnant or impregnate somebody uh, pre-1973, you just don't understand what this country was like um, when people like Sharon and I were growing up. Um, I had a, you know, there was a girl, I've told the story before, I, and I, so I won't dwell on it, but there was a girl that I knew in high school 
that just one day vanished. She just stopped coming to school. And I think this was in 10th grade. And uh, I learned later, maybe a month later, that she had had a back alley abortion and she'd hemorrhaged and bled out. She bled to death at home in bed. And, yes. uh, you know, and was found by her mother in the next morning, um, and which was apparently not an uncommon story. And uh, this is this is what happens. Sharon, thank I'm you. I'm so grateful I was able to graduate and start a job as a public school teacher. Good on you. Good on you, Sharon. And Sharon, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's a it's a it's thank important. you. Thank you. Bruce in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Bruce, thanks for listening to WGRN. What's up? Um, the Georgia or Texas abortion law says anybody can sue somebody who aids or abets. But the way it seems to be written, it sounds like everybody could re sue and resue the same person over and over. That's correct. Can you, can you comment on that? Yeah, it, it, it is set up so that if somebody's working as a receptionist in an abortion clinic, and uh, they, uh, literally a thousand people could sue them, and they would have to defend every single one of those lawsuits separately, um, you know, which would just bankrupt anybody. And if they okay. lost, if they lost any of them, they would lose all of them, and then they'd have to pay ten thousand dollars to each person. I mean, the, this is this is using bankruptcy. This is using the power of money to crush people, which you know takes us back to like the slap suits of you know the, the California finally yeah. made illegal, where where people would speak out against corporate practices. The corporations would hit them with these massive lawsuits and and try to wipe them out. They they went after journalists this way. They went after reporters this way. Um, you know, now they're going after women who are getting abortions this way. This is not a new trick. Okay, I thought I interpreted that correctly. I wanted to make sure. Yeah. If a yeah. woman buys a plane ticket, does the do the airplane companies and the employees also be liable to help her get Apparently out? Apparently, only if she says, "I need to buy an airplane ticket to go get an abortion." But again, who knows? I so, mean, you know, none of this stuff has been tested in any court. Oh wow. And, well, and, 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 well, and the law only covers abortions within the state of Texas. So uh, my understanding is that if a woman buys a plane ticket and leaves town to get an abortion, as long as it's not inside Texas, that does not provide the basis for a lawsuit. But, you know, it, 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 to, to paraphrase the old, you know, any, a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Anybody can sue anybody in America for pretty much anything. And this just opens the door to massive levels of harassment, which is how it was designed. Up next, Professor Richard Wolf will talk about economics for a minute, and then we'll get back to this topic. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Jeffrey Sachs' new book, Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable. This is the preface. The foreword of the book, by the way, was written by Bernie Sanders. This is from the preface, though, by Jeffrey Sachs. Donald Trump becomes president of a nation that is deeply divided by class, race, health, and opportunity. In his acceptance speech, Trump pledged to be the president for all Americans. He also gave a very promising hint of how to pursue that objective in practice. Trump is a real estate developer, so it's not surprising that his brief acceptance speech was dominated by the idea of rebuilding, a word he mentioned four times. And then here's the quote. 
Working together, we will begin the urgent task of rebuilding our nation and renewing the American dream. We are going to fix our inner cities and rebuild our highways, bridges, tunnels, airports, schools, and hospitals. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure, which will become, by the way, second to none. And we will put millions of our people to work as we rebuild it. End of quote from Trump. This is a valid, indeed uplifting perspective. America desperately needs rebuilding. Its infrastructure is decrepit. Its energy system is out of date for a climate-threatened economy. Its coastal areas are already showing grave vulnerability to rising sea levels and extreme storms. Its rust belt cities like Grand Rapids, Michigan are boarded up. Its inner cities across the country are unhealthy for the people being raised in them. Rebuilding America's cities and creating a 21st century infrastructure could be Trump's greatest legacy. Trump's pledge to make America's infrastructure second to none is a correct and bold goal for America's competitiveness, future job creation, public health, and well-being. Yet, as I will explain in this book, America today is certainly no longer second to none. On a recent Sustainable Development Goals Index, the United States ranked 22nd out of 34 high-income countries. For Americans returning from foreign travel, a well-known sign that they've touched down at home is that the elevators, escalators, and moving walkways of our once-proud airports are out of order. A builder president could indeed help to restore vitality to the U.S. economy and put millions of people to work in the process. All of the major candidates in the 2016 presidential campaign pledged a major effort to rebuild America's infrastructure. Indeed, Trump suggested a hefty price tag of $1 trillion, which is a realistic sum and target for the coming five years, roughly 1% of national income every year. The keys to success in building a new American economy can be summarized in three words, smart, fair, and sustainable. A smart economy means deploying the best of cutting-edge technology. Our energy grid should be smart in economizing on energy use and incorporating distributed energy sources, such as wind and solar power, into the grid. Our transport system should be smart in enabling self-driving electric vehicles within our cities and 21st century high-speed rail between them. A fair economy would start with Trump's pledge to rebuild the inner cities. Such a pledge should include affordable housing, decent urban public schools and public health facilities, efficient transport services for low-income communities, parks and green spaces in places now burdened by urban blight, the cleanup of urban toxic dumps, comprehensive recycling rather than landfill, and safe water for all Americans so that the water drinking disaster that afflicts Flint, Michigan, and similar crises elsewhere are brought to a rapid end and never recur. A sustainable economy means acknowledging and anticipating the dire environmental threats facing America's cities and infrastructure. The vulnerability of New Orleans levees had been predicted by scientists and engineers long before Hurricane Katrina. The flooding of New York City had been predicted long before Hurricane Sandy. The risks ahead to the United States in the event of unchecked climate change can be found in countless scientific and policy studies, such as risky business and the National Climate Assessment. Much could go wrong in an undirected building boom that is not smart, fair, and sustainable. Trump's campaign pledges to restore the Keystone XL pipeline and U.S. coal production are cases in point. Investing in a boom in fossil fuels would be an expensive dead end. Such projects will inevitably be closed soon after they are completed, if not in a Trump administration, then in the ones that follow. They are simply untenable environmentally, no matter what the lobbyists assert. Billions of dollars would be thrown down the drain to develop resources that will never be used. It's funny that climate deniers are chortling about the incoming Trump administration. Nature doesn't care what they think, and neither do the 192 other countries on the planet that signed the recent Paris Climate Agreement. Fossil fuel companies can spend money developing unusable sources, resources, but they would be throwing money down the mine shaft, as would the investors buying the, the bonds financing such hapless projects. Trump made another very important pledge in his acceptance speech that should underpin a successful strategy for building a new American economy. He said, I will harness the creative talents of our people and we will call upon our best and brightest to leverage their tremendous talent for the benefit of all. America has nearly 5,000 colleges and universities across the country, including every congressional district. And with the finest collection of engineering and scientific faculty, this is Jeffrey Sachs now talking, uh, faculty and knowledge in the world. These institutions of higher learning have schools of public policy, social work, public health, business administration, and environmental science. Most importantly, they have 21 million young Americans enrolled to gain expertise in the skills needed for leadership and skills for the 21st century. By harnessing the vast brain power and experience in our colleges and universities, in civil society and business, America could indeed enter an era of successful rebuilding, one that creates a smart, fair, and sustainable economy that is truly second to none and serves as an inspiration for other parts of the world.
This is from Jeffrey Sachs. He wrote it in November of 2016, just you know, right after the election, before the inauguration. The book, Building the New America. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, which is now also available as an e-book. Uh, R.D. Wolf with two Fs.com, as well as democracyatwork.info, and you can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. -F. Professor Wolf, uh, we, we had originally uh, uh, planned on talking with you about inflation, but given what's happening in Texas, I'm curious if there is an economist's perspective or an economic piece to this whole uh, anti-abortion um, uh, thing uh, that, you know, what, what just happened in Texas and, and where it's all going. Sure. Let me offer something that has occurred to quite a few economists uh, and is not particular to me alone. If you abandon abortion, if you deny uh, women and, and parents in general uh, the right to make a decision about having a child, bringing a child into the world and all the rest, you're going to create, because we know this from history, an enormous number, nobody knows the exact amount, but an en enormous number of children whose parents either did not understand what they were getting into or do not want to be responsible for their children, cannot carry the burden, will not admit that to the friends, neighbors, or even their own family members. In short, you're going to produce an enormous number of badly raised children, children who are not able to develop many of the qualities you need to be a productive member of society. To say the same thing in plain English, you're going to create an army of new generations of people in this country who are going to need enormous amounts of corrective help later in life to compensate for what you are condemning them to by insisting that they be born to people who would otherwise have chosen not to be in the position of parents. And especially in the United States, where we have this exaggerated concern for the baby being born, and then coupled with an extraordinary hesitancy, usually exaggerated in the very people who oppose abortion, in giving the help to their parents for the 18 years between the birth and the person's uh, becoming an adult, in terms of cool school support and financial support and all the other things normal children need, but these children will need an extra. And the bottom line, therefore, is we're going to have either very disturbed children in huge numbers through no fault of their own, or we're going to have enormous extra costs for social programs at all levels uh, to compensate for this. And the people who are fighting this abortion seem not to want uh, this abortion issue, seem in many cases not to want to face this, not to want to recognize this, not even to want to ask the question, what are the economic implications? I'm not saying that the economic implications are the only relevant ones. Lots of other issues are raised in this abortion struggle. But there is a kind of unwillingness to deal with the enormous uh, economic costs that are going to come down on this country if, in fact, it takes these steps that are like what the state of Texas did. I think it was the Freakonomics guys back a little more than a decade ago who claimed that the uh, steady drop in crime that we saw in the United States from the mid-1980s through the early 2000s. Um, and there was a steady drop, a steady decrease in crime, particularly in violent crime. Um, that that steady decrease was the result of Roe v. Wade and as in 1973, meaning that during that period from 1973 to the, to the 1990s, as these, um, uh, as, as 
unwanted children would have been maturing and many of them becoming criminals, um, they were not there because their parents had chosen to have an abortion. And that Roe v. Wade actually was responsible for the decrease in the crime rate in the United States. Has that is, is that what you're referencing? Has that study been substantiated? I've, I've, I've never seen a good follow-up on it, I, although and I, you know, I've never really looked at that carefully. Well, I mean, many studies corroborate that, Not, but I don't want to make it only a question of crime. But, but just to finish the point on crime, the decline in violent crimes is as impressive since 2000 as it was in the prior period that you just cited. It's really only in the pandemic in the last year and a half, two years, that we've had a bit of an uptick. But we are way below, I mean, on the order of half the rate of violent crime in this country now that we had in the year 2000. So there's no question wow. that there's a relationship between not having unwanted children uh, imposed on families that cannot or do not want to cope with them. Uh, and I won't go into the problems of our foster care system, the problems of our, our uh, adoption systems, which produce an awful lot of troubled people. But it isn't just crime. It's going to be the need for enormous amounts of mental health correction, compensations on a physical level with all kinds of physical diseases. You know, children who are not wanted compensating, for example, by eating a great deal. It's the cheapest drug there is, junk food. And we have one of the worst obesity problems, particularly among children, in the whole world. No one can draw a one-to-one -one line between these things, but it's crystal clear in the medical profession, in the mental health profession, that if you create enormous stresses on people, whether it's because of unemployment, or whether it's because of job insecurity, or whether it's because they have more children than they can manage, than they want, that they can bestow love upon, you're going to be paying enormous costs for that into an indefinite future. Wow. We used to have foundling homes in America, uh, you know, places where uh, uh, women would because they couldn't get an abortion, they would give birth and then they would just drop the baby off on the front step anonymously and, uh, you know, basically giant orphanages and, and, and whatnot. Um, do you see any a return to that kind of thing? I mean, is, is there a whole new um, piece of our economy that is going to emerge or, or, on the other hand, that might collapse as a consequence of, of this Texas law going, going into effect in, say, another 20 states around the United States, so, so effectively half of America has no access to abortion. Absolutely. I mean, that has been the, the recourse for centuries before we allowed the abortion issue to become a real option uh, for young women and uh, for young parents. Uh, the cathedrals of Europe, if you visit them, uh, almost all of them have a place in the wall. Many of them still leave it there for historical reasons, where in the dead of night, uh, a young person could come, leave the newborn baby uh, in a kind of hole in the wall, which would then be picked up on the inside by the nun or the religious cleric, and these people then became uh, the so-called found children that the church would raise. Sometimes the church couldn't cope, and then we have those horrible scandals that have been exploding the whole society of Ireland over the last several years as they discover mass graves of newborns uh, that, the, that the nuns couldn't handle or didn't want to either. I mean, the outcome of not allowing abortion are horrible on a level of dimensions that, again, have to be repressed because if people were clear about them, and the economics is one of them, you'd have much more opposition than you now have. Yeah, we're not, in other words, we're not having an honest conversation about this in this country. That's right. We're not. Very partial, very carefully controlled by those who want to get rid of abortion. Amazing. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much. Great talking to you. My pleasure. At democracyatwork.info, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Let me pick up your phone calls. Pat in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Pat, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. 
just want to say, I was a nurse in London in the 50s, mm-hmm. and there the abortion was a ban still, but it, they changed it in the 60s, I think. But the number of damaged women who came through the hospital, they were damaged mentally, they were damaged physically, many of them were, they had so much trauma, and all because of knitting needles, abortions, Know any other kinds? A good friend of mine died at 18. She was impregnated by a medical student, and uh, she she got peritonitis. Now, all I can say is that we also got p- people who were a bit wiser, and they would douche themselves with potassium permanganate, which would cause uh, excess bleeding, and then they would doctors would do a DNC, and then that would solve the pregnancy problem. But right. The other thing is, I think that forcing a woman to have a baby is the ultimate in child abuse. There's no way that child is ever going to be loved in the way it should be. It's not going to be fed. It's going to be neglected. And it's the crime of allowing a baby to be born to an unwilling mother is absolutely the biggest crime I can think of, apart from the damage to the mother of illegal abortions. It's... It's beyond me to even think that someone would allow a baby to be born to someone who just didn't care or couldn't, wasn't able to care, which is more often the case. And this was so, Richard, um, Richard, Richard's point, and, the, and, the, and these children end up neglected or abused yes. or abused uh, you know, sold. <laughs> I mean, you know, just you know, horrible things happen to children that are yeah. not wanted, and then they end up, as Richard pointed out, needing support, needing psychological support, and in some cases needing physical support, or, you know, push going over the edge and, and needing to be put in, in institutions or in prisons. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's lots of children were in institutions in London, and my mother adopted one of those little boys. He, he just couldn't. He was three, and he could possibly handle the conditions. He was mm. such a troublemaker in the, um, in the orphanage that they had said, we have to get this child out. And my mother took him over, and he, and he became a charming young man. Oh, your mother's a hero. Um, well, it was that was one way to do it, and it, was, a, it saved time, his huh? life because he became a reasonable, happy young man. Pat, thank um, you for sharing your stories with us. What a life you've lived. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, I have. <laughs> you have, <laughs> indeed. And thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 